Can we have a word of the day? I like words of the day. We can have a word of the day. But I have not come prepared, if you can believe that. Can we have a word of the day that's uh, related to being unprepared? Word of the day. Unprepared. <laughs> uh, as in, I've come unprepared for this word of the day. <laughs> Sorry. I don't laugh my jokes, nobody else does. <laughs> I was actually laughing at the word of the day. Oh, really? I was What's too that? busy reading it rather than listening. But normally we go with um, word of the days, which are sort of maybe a little bit fancy. Mm. Maybe I look for a good one, you know. This word of the day is frowsy. Frowsy? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the definitions are musty or stale. That's really bizarre because... When you said, f I, I thought you were going to say fart, because it, it was like such a very simplistic one. I was thinking, oh, it's going to be a fancy word. And then, and then you said, f and then frowdy, which... Frowsy. Frowsy. I was, I was a bit concerned that you were going to say the word fart. But then after the, afterwards, you said the definition of frowsy is musty and... Stale. Stale, which could, could, could describe many a fart that I've done. Uh, that would be generous for most people's farts, but what musty and stale depends yeah. what you eat. Um, the second definition is having a slovenly or uncared for appearance. So if you were to say to someone, looking a little frowsy right now, you're saying that they don't care for their appearance. Yeah. Hey, baby, you're looking a little frowsy <laughs> tonight. <laughs> well, I quite like frowsy. It's a good word. I've, I've never, I've before. never heard of it at all. It's, it's one of those ones. That I want to go, who comes up with these words? How do words come into being? Because if you think about it, um, and I'm sure that we could Google this and find some uh, um, academic paper on 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 the issue or on the subject. But basically, words come from loads of different sources, right? So originally. Um, the first human beings who wandered around the plains of Africa, they would have had, or the first ones who were modern humans who had a vocabulary, um, they would have all used, a, they'd have had a very limited vocabulary, but they would have used the same words for stuff. So there must be root words that are almost identical in all, in all languages, right? I mean, most of the things they wouldn't have heard, thought about and they would have separated and gone in their different ways in these little groups and tribes and families and all the rest of it. And they'd have come across a new type of plant or a new concept or whatever, and they'd come up with a completely brand new word for it, which someone would have invented. I like the idea that someone invented the word cuff, off the cuff, you know. What's the end of this shirt sleeve? I think I should call it a cuff. Well, that's a nice word. Where did that word come from? It just came off the cuff. You know, that kind of thing. But there must be some source words, some root words that, uh, you know, may have may have sort of varied slightly over time, but there must be, in every language, there must be one or two or just a few handful of words that are almost identical. I think in a lot of um, um, Indo-European languages, there are certain words like mother and mum and father and stuff that, that are all fairly similar and have sort of got some changes. 
mm. but they're all based on they 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 all you can see that there was at some point of an original sort of source word that it's migrated into these different. different I had areas. this conversation once about how language comes about if you don't have anything to start with, mm. and I think it evolves from you know like grunts. Like there isn't We're going back to fart again, aren't we? Here. What, grunt? <laughs> I, I've never heard that as. Have you not? God, who's grunted? Thing. No, I've not heard that. <laughs> By grunting, I mean like. <laughs> and maybe one grunt would be yes, and two grunts would be no. And uh, it sort of evolves from, from there over try, time. Try and explain what three grunts means then, just using grunts. I don't know. Three <laughs> grunts is I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there, there is some languages. What's the term like? Um, one particular word comes from the term in Latin or whatever it might be. Mm. So it's like you go into one location and they say things slightly different um, in that location than they do where the language originally comes from. So mm. like the North and South divide. So or, even an accent. Yeah. So an yeah. So you've got even within a town. You've got different accents, really, or different, um, you know, some someone like a, especially in the UK where you've got sort of people who went to a private school, they may have a, a rather kind of, and not just the accent, it's the, it's the kind of words that we use, like that. An in-group type. Yeah. Language, yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, someone else in who from you know, may have grown up just within a mile of that person might have. Oh, mate, yeah, it's a game, isn't it? So there's not just use of different terminology and different slang words and stuff that, um, and turns of phrase. It's also the actual way you pronounce a word. Like, one would pronounce water, and the other one might say water. So, and that, that's, I mean, that's, that's just an accent. But I find it quite interesting because um, having learned Spanish, the root of Spanish is Latin. Um, and the root of French is also Latin, and the root, the root of Italian, obviously, Latin, Portuguese. They're all variants of of Latin, really, that have kind of got off in their own different ways. And then you've got, in Spain, you've got different regional dialects and regional languages. So you'd have Catalan, which is a, an entirely different language. Although, if someone's speaking Catalan, I could understand maybe... 30 to 40, even 50% of what they're saying because they're not only are the words um, in some cases identical to Spanish, but they might be just slightly different variants of the Spanish word. So especially if, if, I, if I listen to two Portuguese people speaking, I can't understand. I can understand barely a word of what they say. But if I see it written down, I can recognise words that are very similar to the Spanish word, so I can read Portuguese relatively well, mm. but I couldn't understand it because the, the accent, even certain Latin American accents, um, the way they pronounce it is so different that I might not be able to recognise it when I hear it, but if I saw it written down, it's absolutely identical, almost identical to the way a Spanish person would write it. Even in the UK, there's, um, there's some accents that are so thick. Mm. That you can't quite make out what they're saying, even though they're speaking essentially the same language. Yeah, Geordie accent, or a Glaswegian accent, like a strong Glaswegian accent. Eh? But it's also it's not just the accent; uh, it's also the um, you know slang words that they might use. 
Yeah, there's, um, and I think that comes from, at least in today's society anyway, that comes from authorities. So if a, if an authority uses a particular term or language or something, take like um, an influencer mm. or a celebrity. Yeah. They use a particular term, then all of a sudden you've got hundreds of thousands of people using that term, and mm. all of a sudden it becomes language. That's true. Yeah, so uh, a good example would be the word mate. Right, mate? Mate is a, is a word that was a set for sailors, right? It came from the east end of London, mostly, because... I didn't know that. Well, you, you, have a, you have a captain, and then you've got ship's mate, first mate, second mate, and all that kind of thing. And so in the east end of London, which at the time was the world's biggest port, you had an awful lot of um, sailors walking around. Mates. They were all mates. So I'll never look at the word mate or say the word mate in the same way again. No. Because so you're, you're essentially calling someone a sailor. You're calling someone a sailor. Dan Zuck's doing... Not that there's anything sailors. wrong with being a sailor. I did a bit of sailing recently. It was great. Um, but yeah, mate is... That's, that's the origin of where it comes from. So, yeah. And there were an awful lot of sailors back then, especially in the East End of London. Because Britain was had this big maritime empire, and so there was an, an awful lot of ships coming in and out. Uh, someone told me, someone, a friend of mine from Southampton told, told me, and I'm not sure if this is true, that the word mush... All right, mush. <laughs> Do you realise that I think most of the people who will listen to this may not even have heard the word mush before? Have you heard the word mush? Uh, oh, it's sort of like a term... Hmm. Like mate, isn't it? It's Although like maybe a bit more of an informal. Yeah. So apparently, apparently, it's, it, this is it, right? So apparently, um, according according to my friend, um, on again another dock place, Southampton, you'd have an awful lot of French sailors coming in, and they'd be called Monsieur this, Monsieur that, and and um, the the locals couldn't pronounce the word Monsieur, so they call it Mush, Mush, right? Mush, Mush this, Mush that, and call it Mush. I don't know if that's true or not, but I really like that story, so I'm hoping it is. Um, I know a bit of a rude word, um, which involves prostitution in in Spain, which I can, which I think is quite an interesting story as well, around how words develop. <laughs> so the word for a woman's lady parts. Sorry, I'm taking it there. I, I thought that you uh, you were going to pause and we were going to move on there. No, no. You're just going for it. No, I'm going to go for it. Uh, okay. A word for a woman's lady parts, or a slang word for it in Spanish, in Malaga, and specifically in, in Andalusia, in the south of Spain, the word for, or one of the many, many um, slang words for a woman's lady parts is chomino. Chomino comes from the English. And I'll explain how. Back in the day, when the English sailors would arrive at Malaga port, um, they'd been at sea for quite a while, and the first thing they wanted to do, these sailors, when they got to port, was to find a nice young lady to bury themselves in. And um, the, the, back then, women didn't wear underwear. So the, uh, the, the prostitutes used to line up, um, they'd go to the docks, and when the, the, the ship came in, they would... Pull up when they they pull up their um their dresses and their skirts and say hey look at this look at this 
And um, what happened was the um, the port authority and the you know the authorities in Malaga were so fed up of this that they that they banned it. Any woman caught doing that would get arrested. So uh, so suddenly these English sailors who probably been telling other English sailors, oh, Malaga's great, you go there, and the girls just show you there. So basically what would happen is they would turn up and the, the women weren't doing it anymore. They couldn't really speak to the Spanish women and the Spanish women couldn't really speak to them. Um, but they kind of figured out that it was the police were keeping an eye on it. So when the, when the police weren't looking, the, uh, the English sailors would go, show me now, show me now. And the Spanish, um, they couldn't pronounce the word show me now. They thought what they're, what they're saying is that. So the word for a woman's lady parts became, um, if you like, a perversion of the word of, of the phrase show me now and became chomino. Chomino, chomino. Because <laughs> that's what they were hearing. Chomino. So it's, that's what it is. And to this very day in, in Malaga, in southern Spain, um, they would use the word chomino. How do you know this? My wife told me. Okay. Mm. Well... I don't know what to say. No. <laughs> Told you I'm going there. It's a good job we can edit. But nevertheless, I think that the root of words, um, uh, rude in other words, and we've talked about, you know, rude words and things before, and, you know, who decides why a word is is banned, why it's taboo, and, and why another word isn't, even words for the same thing. I mean... Intent. Intent, yeah. Okay. So... You know, and, and can you use rude words to give an extra layer of expression? Or is it always negative and detrimental? You know, because I think there are t times and that, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time and a place for rude words. And the key, for me certainly, with kids, because my kids know all the rude words. They didn't learn it from me, they learned it from school. Mm -hmm. And the kids, YouTube channels, all sorts of places. Yeah, it's not... Um... It's not anywhere near regulated, but if that's the right term for mm. it, then it used to be. Mm -hmm. When I, I know you've probably been through the same thing. When I was a kid, it was you couldn't necessarily get that type of thing, swear words, other than on TV. And TV was four channels for me. Yeah, and um, that's right. And, it, and never before nine o'clock. Yeah. But Whereas the internet. Mm. I mean, what we're doing right now, podcasting, I mean, mm. that's changed everything because yeah. I think you're pretty much reliant on um, people to say, well, podcasters to say this is adult content content mm. or whatever it might be. And I don't know, there's just a explosion of content and mm. anyone can listen to it at any time. And anyone who has access to the internet, which yeah, do. It's a, it's a funny thing, though. It comes back down to that. Um, because you need to have an awareness of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and under which circumstances something might be acceptable and in which circumstances it most definitely isn't. And swear words, and I mean, and it comes down to political correctness as well. I mean, it's, it's all about are you causing offence to someone? I was speaking to my friend on the phone the other day and it was just like a quick call. And I was like, do you know your password for this? And I had him on speakerphone, and I was with my two little girls, mm. and he was like, he didn't know, obviously. And he went, F knows. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, how do I 
what do I do here? <laughs> my my uh, my three year old's already been ex- exposed to the f bomb. Yeah. Well, my kids, um, my kids learn them. Uh, a friend of mine uses expletives all the time in front of his daughter, and now his daughter is about fifteen or sixteen. So, uh, you know, uh, him and his wife—they're like effing and blinding. It's an interesting question, though, in terms of what, if they're going to learn it at some stage anyway. There's a and they need innocence. to learn content, uh, context to it, where where and where it is not acceptable. acceptable. Yeah, and under what circumstances? Because I, I don't think it. I, I don't think as a func- fully functioning adult, you should. You know, you should be either using it all the time or, or. Actively or not exposed to, to it ever. It. Yeah. At some stage, they they will be exposed to it, whether you like it or not. And mm. it's just when it's appropriate mm. to expose them to certain swear words. And is it even wrong? Yeah, but to who, not say it. Well, that's right. I mean, who who decides that? Uh, you know, for example, um, going to the going to for a number two. Number two is okay. Poo or poop is all right. <laughs> But some of the other words, which are very commonly used, is the this. S word, for example, what's really the difference between poo and the S word? There isn't a difference, is there? And there's a gradient as well. Mm. I, I used to use the word crap a lot. And crap is not the S word, mm. but it's just a little bit worse than poo. That's right. Actually, you're right. When I was a kid, crap would have got me in a lot of trouble. I'd have got in trouble for crap. But not anymore. But the first time I ever experienced that word in, in the context of sort of, I guess, a child-friendly or a well, TV show was um, The Simpsons. Bart Simpson says crap all the time. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't believe he's saying that. He's getting away with saying that on a TV show for, for kids. I know it's for kids and adults and all the rest of it, but nevertheless, it's a child-friendly TV show, and yet it's a crap, which I thought was extraordinary. Also, um, the word dude, when I was um, in my um, you know, my early 20s, no one said dude in the UK. The only time, and I remember that coming across dude was like something that someone, some surfer from California would use. I'd be like, right, dude, you're dude, you know, and it was like that, and, and now it's a sort of common term, or maybe... That it isn't a common term anymore. Maybe the, you know, the, the youngsters these days. <laughs> maybe young people don't use the word "dude" much anymore. I don't know. But these things, that this, the, you know, these phrases and these expressions and things, they just come and go. At the moment, my daughters go, "I know, I know," all the time. No idea what it means or why they say it. But I guarantee you, in a few months' time. No one says hello anymore, Dad. God, that will be that will be it. Well, um, I I think I said this the last time we talked about it in relation to swearing is that um, you can interrupt people's patterns and that sort of thing with swearing. So I think it does have a slight difference in the brain between um, how you react to swear swear words. So whether or not. It's logical to say that one is just the same as the other. I don't think we react in the way that one's the same as the other. True. So that's someone, because we know that it isn't. 
it still comes down to the fact that one is socially acceptable and one is not. Yeah. And you have to learn that. That's something that's learned. You don't wake up one morning as a child and then suddenly know that this word is wrong and the other is right. You, you have to be taught that. And that this is the thing. If you, grow, if, you're, if you grow up in a house full of people who constantly swear the whole time, and you go and on YouTube and watch TV and everyone's constantly swearing the whole time, then you're not going to know that that isn't acceptable. And, you know, if this continues across society for just one generation, the following generation are going to not have any swear words. Mm. And all words will be equal and non-offensive. Have you had anyone ever swear uh, in any context where it's totally inappropriate? Like, or when mm. you, you deemed it as totally inappropriate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Usually for, in for front example. of... For example. Well, in front of kids. Um, for is it you know... When, you, when I had uh, small kids, and you'd be on the bus or something, and you'd have these people going, oh, effing and blinding. You're like, oh, God. And some people go, I'm really sorry. And they'd notice that the children were there. Yeah. Some people don't care. And some people don't care. Most people who use that sort of language don't care, in my experience. Um, but yeah, that kind of thing all the time. Um, and when they're very young, they don't really understand it because yeah, they don't have the same mm. reaction to you because they don't know it's bad, I guess. But at some point, they become aware that there's a word that's a kind of taboo word that you can't really use before you install that directly in them that that is a word that we don't use in this mm. house, for example. So, yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. Um, I think it's actually really interesting, and I don't know the answer, but I think it's all down to the way that language develops and changes. And language is always developed and changed. I mean, you look at Shakespeare, um, and, and the first, uh, or the oldest, um, or what's considered to be the oldest, I believe, um, English writing, uh, the epic poem Beowulf, which is in Old or Middle English or something, which is almost impossible to understand. You know, it's got almost no relevance to modern English at all. Um, and even Shakespeare, which is, what, 500-odd years ago? Um, that's quite different, and people struggle with Shakespeare when they're studying it at school and things. It's like, what does he mean by that? And Shakespeare himself invented countless words and terms and expressions, which I think is really cool too. Um, my is a bit of a plug here. My my daughter, my youngest daughter in particular, really likes horrible histories. Have you watched horrible histories at all? No, but well, we've talked about it. Yeah, briefly on the podcast. Brilliant. Hor horrible histories is great for kids. It really got my both my daughters, especially my youngest daughter, interested in history because it kind of makes history more. It kind of brings you into it and sort of modernises it. It's just comedy sketches, really. But they've got, like, really catchy tunes and um, all sorts of things. And they'll say things about... These words come from... Um, I don't know, from Latin. These words come from uh, the Vikings and stuff like this. Anger, fear, pain, you know, all that kind of thing. And they'll have a skit, so there'll be someone going... Oh, I'm angry. Oh, you scared me. Fear. And then someone gets stabbed. Pain. And things like this. And they all come from Viking words. And then it will say something like, 
Flyman. <laughs> they're all really like skull and skeleton and you know kind of things like this and then it's like love <laughs> they all come from the Vikings it's like what so that kind of thing anyway I think it's um it's really interesting I I I, I like the way that uh, languages constantly evolve and change and um, I think it's really interesting as well because if you look at language and people who are trying to sort of there are, there are always groups of people who try to stop any sort of change. They don't want language to change. They don't want, you know, and even when the first dictionary uh, was written, before that, people spelt words any old way they wanted, really. And, you know, you could argue that a lot of people still spell words any old way. I know my spelling's not the best in the world. But, um, if not for spell checker. Yeah, if not for spell checker, exactly. I mean, when was the last time you wrote something down like a letter without typing it on the on the computer uh, I think still the use of cards is still around mm. which we've spoken about like mm. why are people doing that I think that's pretty much the only instance is uh, birthday cards or thank yeah. you cards or something well that's a, a tradition isn't it it's a historical tradition yeah and traditions are funny things too because uh, you know why they, they they go into a realm of sort of almost almost religious kind of you, you, you know, sacrilege to it's a fallacy yeah it's a fallacy it's sacrilege to we should to, do it because we've always done it yeah that's right but, but I think human beings are quite traditional and I think when we don't have our traditions they manifest in some other form well I, I think traditions keep people united it gives you a common Sort of it's like a community type environment. Yeah, it's it? like a cement for a community. For a, it sort of keeps everyone in check, and like you know what the boundaries are and things because of tradition. Yeah, and uh, the the way I've um, heard it talked about is in relation to like funerals. So it's very um, very traditional to have a normal funeral, mm. um, even though you know, you might have a person who's not religious or a family who's not religious at all, mm. but they still go through the process of a funeral because um, can you think of a, or there are not many ways which people use where um, it's caught on that justifies a the end of someone's life. Don't you know, why, why do we, you know, bury someone in a field with a tombstone on it? Yeah, that is bizarre. Um, and why do we say these words beforehand? And obviously, if, if you're a religious person, then there's a rationale behind it. But there is nothing really which is universal, which everyone else uses, um, if you're not that mm. way inclined. And if you are that way inclined, it's a tradition. And so, uh, I've often thought about this, actually. It's a good question, because um, each culture has its own... Some traditions regarding funerals and death and how you deal with it. For example, I've seen some funny ones. Yeah, I mean there are some. I really like what there's some yeah. in Bali and places like that. They do some unusual. <laughs> yeah, like they put the body on display. Yeah, I can't remember the country it was. Uh, it's a fair, it's a country that um, might be perceived as uh, not well off, um, but they put the body out. And the body is visited for, I think it's a period of three days. Hmm. And they're doing, it's like a model, they're modelled doing the profession that they did when they were alive. Really? So, for example, um, I think the 
the example that they used was like a shopkeeper. Mm. So they've got the body on display and they've also done things to the body to make sure it's not doing all those things that a body does when it's dead, breaking De down. Decomposing. And they put um, the body behind like a, I don't know, like a countertop or something mm. and people visit the body for the three days and then that's when the funeral's over. Wow. Because they have all sorts of things about, you know, spirits will come and haunt you unless something happens within a certain period of time and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, even, even my experience, um, even, even the UK compared to um, Spain is radically different. So when, in Spain, when someone dies, um, they, the whole family, certainly in southern Spain, where my wife is from, the whole family will then go with the body to the cemetery, which is all sorted out and arranged and paid for in advance. So you pay for your death in, in advance there. And you also pay for a, a, a niche, so a little niche, a little, um, you know, they're, they're buried in, in like high-rise sort of burial chambers, if you like. So it's, it's almost like a hotel pod thing where you, you, you know, you've just got a bed to lie in. You so, said it's like a monthly fee thing. So it's continues, a month. It? I, I believe it's monthly or it's annual or something. But you pay for the upkeep, and they and they need to be there in that niche. So um, what happens is anyway, the 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 family is there, um, and they stay there for twenty four hours. You're not allowed to bury someone in Spain within twenty four hours by law. So they wait twenty four hours, and they, the family will wait there at the the funeral parlor. Um, for 24 hours and other family members will come in and pay their respects i couldn't help thinking when you said that mm. sorry to interrupt why is it why do they have to wait 24 hours and then i thought could it be because they might wake up or something i don't know yeah that's <laughs> illegal yeah like. yeah it's true but they're not really buried anyway if you were going to be um you're put into a niche your body is put into this niche you are in a in a in a coffin but you're not underground you know, you might be on, you, you've got neighbours above you, below you, to the side. And you could be put in a niche with another family member. So you might want to be put with your mother or your father. But mm. if your mother and father have broken up, then you'd have to choose which one. And, you know, and, and what actually happens is, um, so that happens 24 hours. And then and then they're put in the niche and there's, um, they have a, a service, sort of quite, usually quite a quick half hour service that's not specific to their life, really, and you don't get people saying, oh, John was a great guy, you know, and he did this and he did that, and making jokes and anything like that. It's just very... The family goes there, spends 24 hours there, they, spend, they sleep there by the body, everything, and it doesn't close, it's open 24 hours. Anyone who can make it will come and visit it, visit the, um, them there, pay their respects, the body's on display, um, and then, uh, and then, you know, 24 hours after the death, they have the service and they're buried or not, rather not buried, they're slotted in. Mm. Um, and then yes, there's an upkeep for it. Uh, then a month later you'll have a service that will be in the local church. It will mention them, but again, it's not a specific. And then there was John and he said, and you couldn't believe what happened next. It was unbelievable. That kind of sort of, um, no stories or anything. It's just, it's just very simple. It's an interesting thing. Isn't and then it? a year afterwards again. I don't know whether you've ever seen on TV shows and that sort of thing where they, um, uh, 
they're grappling with the the issue that they have to tell some or say something nice at a funeral when mm. there's nothing nice to say. Yeah, no, they don't have that problem. Yeah, that's not a problem they suffer. But what actually does happen is that um, following the death, um, there may be issues around where that person's going. And whereas in the UK, uh, in order to um, exhume someone's remains, you need to get a court order from a judge. You know, once they're buried, they're buried, and you cannot move them. And it literally is rest in peace. In Spain, they're constantly moving bodies the whole time. Even that phrase is an interesting one. Mm. Rest in peace. Well, in theory, I mean, it's my position that there's no evidence to suggest that anything happens after death. And so, for you're not resting, and even if, well, there's no way to rest any other way other than, you know, it, you can't rest in peace or not peace, you're not resting. So, even the term mm. rest in peace is a traditional one, which we talked about. If you're hung, drawn, and quartered, you would literally be in pieces. Yes, rest in pieces. Yeah, that's an M&M phrase. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so basically, uh, what might happen is we've got two factions of the family where they've fallen out over something or someone has and then, and then they don't want to be buried with a certain member of the family or they don't want to be in the same niche or someone else will say well when I die I want to be in the same place as my mother so then they have to open that up and the mother's remains will have sort of decomposed a bit so there's just enough space to swap them in but then you might have two brothers one of them they hate each other but they both want to be buried with their mother and neither of them like the father do you know what I mean but they they don't they won't be buried with each other but they've got both to be buried with the mother and then and then you know there's all sorts of problems it's extraordinary wow. and then the upkeep and then if you don't pay for it after a certain period of time they, they turf you out and they put you in an unmarked grave anyway which is quite shocking for I mean you know a lot of um, a lot of families, uh, UK families, for example, they may have someone who died in a foreign country years ago. You know this, um, who do you think you are? They have on TV where they, they trace your ancestors and stuff. Right. There was a famous, I can't remember who it was, they do it with celebrities, and there was a famous person, and their grandmother, I think, died in Honduras or somewhere like that in, in Central America. And when they traced them, they found that the... What happened was they'd had a funeral, they'd been buried, and then their family members had moved on somewhere else, and no one had paid for the funeral, uh, to, for the upkeep, because they were foreigners and they didn't understand how the system worked. And that their grandmother or great-grandmother had been exhumed from there and put in an unmarked grave. And that to them was tremendously, you know, really, really hurt them a lot. They were, They felt... A great deal of pain and regret because of that. I remember. Yeah, um, I sort of I can understand if you hold certain views, mm. like um, if you go and visit a a tombstone, that somehow that person might be looking down on you in some form or something mm. like that. But I still don't. I'm not entirely sure that's a particularly logical position because no. they're not actually in there anymore. But I think it's about respect. Uh, well, you know, I mean, again, you've got to respect your ancestors, and you don't have to respect, respect your ancestors if they're not worthy of respect. The the whole respect True. your mother and father thing. Mm. Say, um, I, I don't I don't subscribe to that notion because if they if they 
if they are, let's say if they're murderers or if they're, you know, terrible people or something, mm. you don't respect them just because they're your mother and father. No. And so it's by, it's just like anyone else you would, I mean, it's different because it's family, so mm. you might be a bit more tolerant, but at the same time, there's no reason to respect someone who's not worthy of respect or, mm. or doesn't show you any respect. That's absolutely true. But on the other hand, um, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. It's it's showing your respect, and in Spain, that's a very big thing. You 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 show a great deal of respect to family and to elder people. It's still a big thing in Spain, and so uh, if you didn't pay for your little niche, that would be a, a looked down upon you by the community in general, and that you don't show your family respect, and that you didn't love your family properly, and so on and so forth. There's a quite a lot of pressure um, to conform to that. Uh, whereas I, on the other hand, personally, could literally not care less what happens to my body when I die. No interest whatsoever. If I'm not using it, I don't need it, and therefore I don't care about it. Are you, do you do the, uh, are you a donor? Yeah, well, we're all going to be donors, actually. Oh, soon. right, no choice. Yeah. I'm a donor. You have to, you have to, back, you have to specifically say that you don't want to be a donor. At the well, moment, will be you the do case have soon. to opt in. Mm. But, um, it's changing. All right. Yeah, it was uh, something about it in the news the other day. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a temporary th fix anyway. Donating donation of body parts. You know, it won't be too long before they're grown in a in a lab, or not even required to be grown. It can be you know fixed within the body by some kind of unknown mechanism. So I don't know, but um, that will obviously be the future, assuming that society continues to develop and um, doesn't destroy itself in some way. Um, I saw some sort of cool video type thing where mm. it's like, um, it was this this parent uh, travelled, I don't know, 3,000 miles or something to listen to his son's heart or something, and it was in the body of a, a woman that had gotten a transplant or something. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because you're holding on to a little bit of the fact that you're, you can't, I guess you can't entirely let go because your loved one is still alive in some way. And then it becomes about what is a person. Yeah. It's really, it's a complicated one. But um, if you can, if, I would say that if you can replace your heart, you're still you and therefore you're not your heart. But it all so, comes down to consciousness and, and yeah. what, what is that? It would be... I think essentially it would be your brain, wouldn't it? You're your brain. So if you were cloned, but your clone lay there with no life, would it? Would this clone spontaneously start living and have a soul or whatever? Or, or I don't think there's a soul. Well, what people consider to be a soul, or or at least have. I mean, I think this is this is my belief. If you cloned someone and they were absolutely fully functioning and they were they were able to have life, I mean, they were an exact clone of you, but they were there lying on a slab, um, even if it required some kind of like a, a defibrillator or whatever to sort of get their heart going, once that mechanism started, 
they would then develop everything else that's required to sustain a human being. Because the heart would start pumping the blood around, which would feed the brain, and the brain would start presumably firing off and doing its thing. I don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> I've no idea why not. We're talking about... You said it, if if they, there was a clone yeah. and they were just lying there yeah. and then they got a defibrillator. So a clone, right, has no life. It's literally just... Well, how, how would they it, be a clone? Well, I don't know. You've been cloned. Your DNA has been mapped out and you've been well, If it's cloned. just the, the same that you can just say mm. where you've been cloned, then mm. you can just say... We think, you know, they'll be electrified and everything, they'll pop into existence and that's... Yeah, but we're talking about what is consciousness, are we not? We were talking about what it is that makes you, you. Hmm. Were we? I don't know. Because we were talking about the heart. Okay, oh yes, that's right. So, so, uh, if you had an exact clone, there have been movies about this kind of thing already, but if you've got an exact clone of yourself, you could use that clone for body parts if the clone wasn't alive it'd be sitting there in some lab somewhere and you go oh I, I had a terrible accident and my arm got cut off I'll just take my clone's arm and that's it it's fine and essentially this, yeah so you're exactly the same person right but but assuming that that clone actually was sitting up eating drinking thinking and all the rest of it so it, it's all about the thought process Assuming that clone, uh, could that clone survive without any kind of thought process going on? Could they just function, eat, do all these other things? Could, could you, can you separate understanding of your environment from the, the base requirements that you're to, the, of, of keeping a body alive? Or are the two absolutely interwoven and there's no possible way that you could have a fully functioning clone um, that is alive without being alive, if that makes sense. I was, I was following you until the last part. You, If you were alive, then you'd be alive. So, But what I mean by that is you, would, you might be able to maintain through your heart might work and pump, the, the, the lungs might work and your body might function, but you, your brain, you'd be brain dead, essentially. You would have no cognitive ability other than the, the parts of the brain that just keep your body alive so that your body <laughs> is literally this is a lot of artistic license right. for me well, it is it's, it's it's a completely new concept i'm not explaining well, I, I i think that they'd never be able to replicate a brain exactly uh, oh, so no, that sounds like a challenge <laughs> i don't it's see too complex i think no i don't never get I, the brain i don't think so i don't think that's true at all you Certainly, could. they can't at the moment. But but if they are if they are able to understand the way that the building blocks of life work, then they could, in theory, build a human being. If they were able to to build, I mean, if a brain if a brain if a brain works in the same way that heart works or that lungs work, in that it has a function, and it's very complex function, and perhaps the most complex function that we know of in the universe. Nevertheless, if it could be broken down to its building blocks, to its component parts, you would be able to build a brain. The, the thing, the interesting thing for me is, once you've achieved that, which would be the most astonishing, you know, achievement, I mean, it's the most complex 
thing that we know of in the universe, right? But if you were able to do that, would that brain then have consciousness or would it require something else? And I, I think... I don't think consciousness is some separate thing. It's just a... Um, I think it would have consciousness. Because if it works and if it functions, there's well, no difference exactly between... exactly replica, yeah. Yeah. So there's no difference, really, between it and another human being, ultimately. Well, yeah, if you if you said, you know, this this table is an exact replica of that table, then mm. they would be they'd both be tables. So if there were two Toms, there was an exact clone of Tom that's been completely um, uh, synth synthetic, it's been made by human beings. Um, who is that other Tom? Is it you? You wouldn't have any control over the other Tom number twos hand movements or anything else I mean that if, other... it, if it was if it was possible to do a replica of all those things then it would just be another human being mm. and one would be the original and one would be the replica yeah uh, I, I would say I would say it's impossible to transport memories and stuff like that because every brain is at least externally every brain has the same thing but we mm. have our experiences so maybe I mean I, I don't, don't think it's possible, but maybe if you were to create a brain, mm. that brain might might work in some form, but it wouldn't have all the same memories as I would have. So it would have to build, a, it, although we don't really know how memory is formed and stored in the brain that much, or at least... Well, there's an awful lot we don't know about the cloning yeah. process. Well, that's true. But if, if, we can, if we can imagine that it's possible to clone someone in terms of... It's, it's, it's like building a computer, isn't it? Could you build, copy a computer and make it function? The answer is yes, you could. You need some kind of external stimulation, so in other words, electricity for a computer at this moment, and you'd need something... What I was trying to get at before is that if you built like Frankenstein's monster, right? Frankenstein's monster always requires some kind of electricity in the movies, in the book, and everything, to, to give it that life. So there is a concept of life being separate to to the, I guess, the vehicle that it's being. You know what I mean? So in other words, in if a human being, the body of a human being is like a car, you need some external thing to be able to drive it. So you'd need the person being the life or the brain that actually steers the car and makes it go because without that person driving, the car doesn't do anything, except that we're getting to the point where cars can drive themselves. And so... We can't do driving cars again, self-driving cars. No. We've happened this too many times now on the podcast. Oh, you know I love that. I can't do it again. But, but it's the same concept. So just because we don't understand it now, doesn't mean that we won't understand it going forward. And if we do understand it going forward... Um, maybe we could, as well as clone the brain of someone, so you're an exact replica of the other, and perhaps you can also include their memories. don't know. It's all hypotheticals at the moment, because uh, I don't think there's any much chance that either of, either of us will sit down and create a person in that way. But, um, although, in fact, the both of us, we don't even have the ability to create a person the old-fashioned way, either. Because... Uh, not not between us. We need a third a third party. 
So, um, you know. I would say that we know so little about how the brain works now. Mm. There's not many things that I would want to say we'll never do that, but I would say we'll never be able to create a replica of a human being. Um, so the, 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 the replica itself wouldn't even know that it was a re- replica. I think the, the film is The Island, I think, with... Um, oh, yeah, The Island has got it, yeah. Um, it's not the only film, but, uh, but yeah, that's films, films, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I I disagree. I think that it's almost inevitable if technology continues to advance, then it's just a matter of time before we figure everything out. I mean, it. You know, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It just seems. I mean, think of things that are now commonplace, that a couple of hundred years ago, or even fifty years ago, would have seemed impossible, utterly impossible. You know. You go back in time and you walk around and there's a, you know, I mean, how far back do you have to go? A couple of hundred years, not even that, 150 years or something. And now we're talking about helicopters and flying planes. and. There's an awful stuff. lot of experimentation for that stuff, though. I mean, in order to find out how the brain works, you actually need a, to be able to look at a brain. And... Um, yeah, I, I'm not convinced. There's there's some neurology stuff that I'm aware of um, because of my condition, mm. and um, they know so little about how the brain works that the way the medications work, or it's like a um, sort of like a quilt mm. over everything. So they can't pinpoint mm. things that go wrong. It's like applying it to the whole brain. You yeah. take brain medication. Because they just don't know how it, even at the top levels, they just don't know how it works. Well, it's not surprising, really, because it, it, it is, as far as I'm aware, the most complex organism or whatever it is, thing known to humanity. We don't know of anything more complex in the brain. So, but not all brains are the same. I mean, I don't mean that some people are more intelligent than others, or even what intelligent really is. But that, you know, a simple organism has a very simple brain and a more complex organism has a more complex brain. Mm. And so somewhere along that line, say mouse, for example, a mouse has got a simpler brain than a human being, but a far more complex brain than, I don't know, some other more simple creature. So, you know, I I think that, I think that, yeah, we just don't, it's just such a complicated thing that we don't, know very much about it but I think we're one thing we're very good at is learning and um, you know you, you, quantum computers I mean if if the news recently um, is to believe be believed Google has come up with a solved a problem that could only be solved by a quantum computer mm, I saw the, a few articles on this mm. I was tempted to read on but I wasn't mm. sure how much was hyperbole and I think a lot of hyperbole in it. That's a good word as well, hyperbole. What was the word of the day again? Oh, hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a... What was it? Wait, wait, wait. It begins with F. (laughs) Have you got it? No, foxly or fongly or something like that. Frowsy. 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 Yeah. Kind of reminds me of a German lady, Fräulein. Sounds like some sort of dog. Frowsy. I just got myself a frowsy. Oh, it does. 
I rescued a frowsy uh, the other yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Did you? No, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I think um, yeah, I think the brain is really interesting. I think yeah, we can always go on to future things, and I think what's going to happen in the future and self-driving cars and all the rest of it. And I, you know, I love that. And I can talk about that all day long, but, um, yeah, what is consciousness? The reason we all, we, we started going down that particular route and talking about cloning and all the rest of it is because what happens after you die? And personally, I want my ashes to be spread somewhere nice. Like the sea or something. Yeah. And that's what happened with my mum. We spread my mum's ashes uh, at a, in, a, in the sea at a beach that she really, really liked. And there's no headstone or anything for her. Because, to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't want a headstone. But I have cons- I've worried about that a little bit because I know that it was her wish to, to have her ashes mm. spread. Um, but... I never asked whether she wanted some kind of headstone or something. I personally would prefer a tree to be planted or something like that. That is going to grow and be there for generations and generations. But no one would necessarily know that that tree has got what you know how it got there or why it was planted or anything like that. It's just the people who know. But future generations, they might go, well, I'd like to find Jake's mother. Where is she? What happened to her? And, you know, there's no specific record of where her last earthly remains mm. are. But um, having said that, um, that's exactly what I would like for me. Ashes spread, there it is, job done, it's in a beautiful place. If you want to go and remember that person. In Spain, uh, another thing that they would do is they, and you see it in the UK as well, someone dies in a, in a road accident and they put um, flowers and a memorial by the side of the in the, in the spot that that person died, which kind of acts in a way as a sort of a warning, if you like, for other people who come along that road. And maybe there's a bit of an accident black spot, and it kind of makes you think, oh, someone died there. That's that's terrible. Um, but it's not. I mean, my mother died in a road accident, and it's my least favorite place on earth. And the last thing I'd ever want to do is to go back to that spot. Um, purposefully to lay flowers or anything like that. Much better for me is whenever I think, you know, I, I feel the need to, to reconnect with my mum in some way, I would go to the spot where it was special to her that she really loved. And that's where her ashes were spread. And that is kind of almost like a special place for that purpose. Yeah. I think um, one of the conclusions, I think, uh, based on what our uh, conversation has been is it, it's not as much as you might have wishes when you do go it's more for the people who are still living than it is anything else yeah and so entirely for people who are living so I suppose if if it's not that illogical if you think about what the tradition is like here's where your loved one was and here's a tombstone and you can talk to them whenever you want mm. even though you know they don't talk back but you can talk to them wherever you want, wherever you are as well. I guess for, for someone who's in, in that mind space, I don't know, they wouldn't feel that way. Maybe. That's a shame. Human beings need that. Kind I always of, feel that like I take my mother with me everywhere I go. Well, I think that's a good way to think of it. 
Um, well, she is. I do, technically, in my genes, apart from anything else. I mean, I literally carry hair everywhere I go because I share 50% of me is, is comes from, from her and her genes are, are within me. Mm. So, you know, I, I technically do. And, and I've always wondered about reincarnation and stuff like this because reincarnation, we see it all the time. I think it's so obvious and so common that we don't even notice it for what it is. The concept that you die and your consciousness will exist intact in another person and you'll have another life and all the rest of it, to me, is just an unnecessary complication. Because from my point of view, when you have a ch child, you are passing on your genes. You're passing on a little bit. And there must be some inherited um, things that you pass on, but it must, must also be, I would guess, some kind of memory or muscle memory or some something can be passed on innate fears so like my my child my child is scared of of what looks like a snake why is that is it because i mean why would you be why would ancient mankind be scared of a snake i mean it's not very long doesn't have any arms or legs doesn't look like it can do you any damage, but you know that it's dangerous. So how do you know that, that it's dangerous? With babies, um, they don't react to much or they don't learn much, but one thing they do know is that loud sounds, mm. they can react to loud sounds, even yeah. though they haven't been yeah. taught it. And that's something which is... So it must be passed on. So, but, but there's two ways that that could happen. The first way is that um, you... It, it, the ones who don't have a natural fear of that snake, for example, or a loud noise, or what looks like a big hungry lion. It's natural selection, yeah. yeah. They all die, but then why on earth would there be some that do have a, a fear of it? Do you know what I mean? Why would you have a fear of a snake? I mean, in the movies, snakes are massively long, or there's loads and loads of them, and they're very dangerous. And, but why would you have a fear of a snake? Mm. If you know concept... So the original people, the first time they saw a snake, they died. Yeah. Or they didn't. And the ones that died, didn't. did they pass on their genes? Maybe their children saw them be bitten by a snake and die and think, hmm, they're dangerous, those little funny things after all, so I don't want anything to do with that. But then, And then they tell their children. But why then... Do we have these natural fears for for strange things like snakes? Or do we? Maybe we don't even. I don't know. Hundreds of thousands of years of... But is it a learned memory? If that word even exists, that phrase. I, I think it's... it's um, there are some, some things that they know that you, you get that automatically. You don't have to learn it. Yeah. But I also think you can very quickly unlearn it. Yeah, but can some of those things be passed on in your genes? Um, yeah, the, we could probably look this up. There are some things that, that come through, regardless of whether you learn them or not. Like so the, the some traumatic, yeah. So some traumatic event in your grandparents' life could affect the genes in them somehow, and that, that it gets passed on to. 
as some kind of subconscious fear or something to further generations? I think, I don't know, but I think it would be an extremely long time Mm. um, and it would have to be something, you know, this will save your life type thing or this Mm. will kill you, that type of thing. It's an interesting concept though. Yeah. But I think the the definition of terms thing there was that people who do be believe in reincarnation are not thinking in the way that you think. No, people who believe in reincarnation, I'm assuming, believe that they will be reborn in intact mentally in another body and have another life. Whereas I I see reincarnation all around us in that you are recreated and your genes are passed on to your offspring. And that goes on through generation after generation. So I kind of think, uh, this is obviously, we have to be careful about this, but generally speaking, I think that um, whether you like it or not, when you die, you die. But I personally think that the idea of going to some other place and living on forever is quite egotistical on my part. And therefore, you know, what, why? What, what makes me so special that I should live forever? And, it, and if I were to live forever, what would I look like? So if I went to heaven, what would my body look like? Would I be my current version of me? Or would I be like an idealised version of me? Or would I be would I be a 20-year-old? Or whenever I was in my prime? I mean, what would I look like even? This is um, an interesting... Uh, this is done in philosophy as well. So um, uh, the way heaven's described, like you don't have any of your concerns or mm. worries or anything like mm. that. Because mm. it's heaven, you're not going to be, you know... I know, anxious in heaven or something. Sure. So it's only in hell where you are yourself mm. because you're yourself, you haven't changed at all. So you go to hell and you're in fire or whatever it might be. But in heaven, you're a kind of warped version of yourself because you don't, you're not the same you anymore. Does that make sense? Right. Conceptually, I suppose, yeah. So you're a morphing kind of everyone and anything kind of so you wouldn't be you anymore if you were to go to heaven mm. well you wouldn't be anyway because part of who, what makes you is concerns and fears and ambition and surely in heaven you could have no ambition because you'd have everything you need already so there's no ambition so all the kind of things that kind of make you yeah, it wouldn't be you anymore a person would no, no longer be there but you would be you if you went to hell so the moral of the story is, go to hell. Be yourself. The moral of the Be story Be yourself, is, go to hell. There's no such thing as heaven or hell. Well, the fact, of the, matter is, yeah, the fact of the matter is that, uh, yeah, I think um, that reincarnation is that. It's, if you are lucky enough to have offspring and they are lucky enough to survive and have their own offspring and so on and so forth, that is recycling of your genes, so to speak. Um, but does it matter if your genes are recycled or well, handed down? Actually, I think it's the prime driver between life, isn't it? Because if it were the prime driver, why aren't, are we not um, you know, mating as frequently as possible or donating to sperm banks and that sort of thing and getting our genes out there as much as possible? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm uh, late for my appointment. <laughs> 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 there, there are some I think it's insects mm. that uh, either insects or animals that 
take that approach. Mm. So they're not going to stick around. Scatterbomb. Yeah. I'm going to spread my genes as much as possible. Mm. And if it were the case that that was the most important thing, mm. then that's what we would be doing, theoretically. Or, uh, you know, should we be doing that if it is the most important thing? Well, or if we, it is important at all? Well, we can't do that because uh, women are not capable of giving that sperm many. bank. What do you mean? Well, men, in theory, could do that, but we're only part of the equation because uh, women are very limited in the amount of children they can have based on the fact that it takes nine months to gestate a baby to the point where it can form to be a human able to live, live on its on its own. I saw an interview well, on, on its own. own. I mean, outside of uh, outside of its mother. Mm. So. Um, the very fact that it requires nine months means that there's nine months out of the year that are, you know, that, that in, in a given year, assuming that a woman was able to have a baby without any kind of um, recovery period, and that the and the baby itself was then immediately taken off and cared for by grandparents or somebody else, and the mother then became nothing more than a, the baby machine. Well, that's not that's not much of a life, anyway, is it? Really? It's not much of a life, but um, I saw I saw an interview the other day, which was because um, addictions, people are addicted to all sorts of funny things, and uh, yeah. this particular lady was uh, addicted to having babies, and she was wow. on number thirteen. My God! And I also saw one, which is the um, uh, the record for the eldest mother, um, and it was what what's the term? Where it's um, assisted. I don't know. Assisted so, pregnancy, um, assisted um, delivery, insemination. Ah, artificial insemination. So um, basically, uh, she was sixty-nine or something. Yeah, like well, she's not mother. the oldest mother anymore because the other day, um, a seventy-five-year-old woman had a baby in, in India. I think that's the one I'm referring to. Seventy-five. So yeah, if if you did want to do that throughout your whole life, yeah. that would be a considerable amount of babies. I did see a thing about a woman who was uh, addicted to smelling babies' nappies. <laughs> Which, I mean, I mean, you know, how does that addiction even start? I suppose frequent smelling of nappies. But it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, yeah. And her friends were trying to help her and she had to get psychological help. And, you know, they'd be like, you look in her bag right now. No, you can't look in my bag right now. Look in your bag and you'll see. I just, no, I bet you've got a used nappy in there. No, I don't. Look in the bag and lo and behold, there's a couple of used nappies in there. Just one to use and one just in case. You know, if I lose the first one somehow. My goodness. So it does take all sorts. But um, I don't know where, how we got onto that even. But, uh, yeah, addictions... Uh, yeah, so, yeah, it isn't a scatterbomb approach because um, we are in that we're made up of men and women, and you, know, you could argue now that there's all sorts of gender fluidity, fluidity, and all sorts of other things as well. But historically, at least, there's been men and there's been women, and um, women have got a very limited amount of offspring that they can produce, and they need an awful lot of care these children once they're born as well you can't as you well know you know so i i guess in most societies that's how these husband and wife sort of family unit they support each other or hopefully the uh, you know they like to get married and live 
together and support each other and all the rest of it. And, uh, and that's a whole other topic because, as you know, that doesn't always happen and different society, societies, it's different and so on and so forth. But basically, um, you can't do a scatterbomb approach that, that way. It just If you were to do it, you'd need hardly any men and a huge number of women. But if, it, if you were to, if you were able to, then it probably would be the case. Because other other it's the case. Other animals are do do that. But as a man, you live in a society, and half of the people in society, uh, and and half of your parents even are women. So you are, regardless of whether society is unfair to women, which you know there's not much argument against that. Most most people would would agree that you know life has been harder on women throughout the generations and throughout history and that they haven't had an equal um, time of things. But even so, you know, most people, how many people don't respect their mother? Most people respect their own mother. You know, you're not gonna just go, hey, I don't care about women at all, I'm just gonna go out there and scatterbomb. Um, however, having said that, there are millions of men who do that, but they're just not very successful in society because, you know, funnily enough, women don't kind of appreciate that generally speaking so although this woman who's addicted to having 13 kids i bet you she's i don't know but i mean i would imagine she she sticks with one bloke at a time um if not the same husband so no, i'm on the same page as you it's more important to look after the ones you've got than mm. have more mm. uh, but why would you still why would you still want to have children in the first place because it's a prime driver for most people certainly as a as a as a as a human race, uh, if we don't have children, that's the end of the human race. So, you know, at what point are we looking after number one, and at what point is that looking after the whole human race? Well, it comes back to the whole natural selection thing again, right? For those that didn't value passing on their genes, they're no longer, or their genes are no longer here. Whereas the ones which did value it. Hmm. You're looking at them. Um. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I like that. That's good. So, in conclusion, I'm not sure we can conclude this podcast. It was crazy. <laughs> it was a bonkers podcast. We talked about a number of different things, though. Is there anything that you've noticed recently that you wanted to talk about? I mean, uh, in particular, not not really. I mean, we talked about um, swearing and language a bit, which was quite interesting, I thought. Um, we haven't really talked about religion, but we've talked about... I mean, we've, we've, we've had a wide scatterbomb approach to, um, to topics, actually. Is there anything that you particularly wanted to... Is there something fascinating to you? There's so many things that are fascinating to me that it's kind of hard to focus on any one given thing really mm. yeah, we're having some interesting conflicts in society at the moment that's what I've noticed and um, the whole tribalism thing I wanted to do some research into um, what it is uh, from a psychology perspective which makes us maybe have in group preferences that sort of thing where that comes from mm. Um, because then the conflicts that I'm referring to are, um, you know how, because um, you mentioned 
uh, gender mm. a minute ago. You know how there are some the transgender thing, which is um, a, a protected class and being pushed as uh, you know something that you need to respect and that kind of thing. Well, yeah. There's um, there's some feminist groups at the moment which I didn't even know existed, who are rejecting the concept of transgender um, because their case is that you don't have to be you don't have to necessarily make any changes to your body. Let's say if you or I were to say that we're transgender women, mm. um, that means that essentially it's a biological man who's now in the space of women. Mm -hmm. And the whole concept of feminism and women having their own spaces is to be separate from men. And on the one hand, you have the people who are, who might be pro-transgender, who say, you know, you're not, you're supposed to recognise these people as women because mm -hmm. that's how they identify. And on the other hand, you've got the feminists who are saying, we have separate spaces from men for particular mm -hmm. reasons, and those reasons are you know, safety in some instances. And I just thought it was an interesting, um, yeah, we're is. getting some interesting conflicts. And another one that I noticed recently, which I actually did share with you, mm. and that was the, the conflict between teaching um, acceptance of LGBT in schools mm. and then how that conflicts with religious groups who um, their teachings or their scripture says that those types of things are not to be accepted or they're an abomination or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so we're trying to be as accepting as possible, but we're sort of crossing over into people's interests. And I just wonder how it's all going to fare out. You know, That's the, that comes down to political correctness as well. But you can't be politically correct in both instances. No, you can't. And I just think, I mean, it's fascinating to look at. I just think it's what's going to happen, you know? Mm. I agree with you. It's um, you know, permissive society, uh, effectively, and people people becoming more open-minded generally are, um, are bring bring in all sorts of new concepts and questions into existence that you know most people would never even consider before. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's all power for the good. I think it's a good thing. Why not think about these things? What can we learn from them? But yeah, you're right. The jury's out at the moment. You can't. It's difficult not to upset somebody. You have to be careful what you're what you're saying. And even if you are being, for example, in your 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 example, um, you are you, you know. In fact, in fact, I think the LGBT thing started off and has has got more and more because certain groups felt that they were not being represented and they were being excluded from it and so you know I guess it does it come down to pigeonholing and having people label labeling is it a labeling thing is, is all of that down to labeling it's like I'm labeling you in a certain way and people are being I feel that people are labeling me in a certain way and I don't like that label I want a different label I don't know. I think some of it is significance. So um, if you've, I think I've spoken to you before about the six human needs from Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. one of which is significance. It's an important one. Okay. And um, I think some people want that kind of group 
so that they can be significant in some form. Mm. I think um, it, it's the same thing. Um, recently, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, there's been in the news about the Canadian Prime Minister and his black face, yeah. or brown face. And that's the same kind of thing as well. It's um, For me, that was just a Republican versus Democrat thing. Mm. Oh yeah, no, they're using it for political advantage. For so sure. everyone, everyone who previously Except it's in Canada, but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Everyone who previously would have said, you know, on the right, who would have said, you know, don't make such a big deal out of it. Mm. Now it's the biggest deal in the world. Mm. And now everyone on the left who previously would have screamed racist are saying, mm. you know, it's not racist. It's just in bad taste or whatever it might is be. It, is it in Holland, Black Peter or something like that? Have you heard of that? Don't it's a Christmas thing, so um, it's like Father Christmas, but it's a black person, but essentially being Father Christmas, I think. Um, and historically, uh, there have been very few people of colour in, in Holland, and so people would, for generation after generation after generation, they've been blacking their face up to do it. Uh, and now it's um, when you think about it, it's like, well, that's that's not right. Okay, they're why you know. It's it's upsetting people because it's a stereotype. It's a positive stereotype in some ways, but Actually, nevertheless, it's stereotyping the reason, black people. I think the reason why that's that is offensive is not because colouring your face one way is or isn't offensive. Mm. It's just that it was done. By certain people previously, yeah, and so and that culture had slaves who were slaves by race. With previously, slavery had always been, and funny enough, um, slavery has existed since the dawn of time, still exists, and still exists. But it's never been a racial thing before, or at least not widespread. It only became that way in the Georgian times, I think. Um, I think I'm right in saying it's the Georgian times, when it became, but and until the Georgian times, you in the West Indies, for example, you'd have slaves of all races, white slaves, black slaves, all sorts, and and it became something that became written into law. It was um, it was a, it was a racial thing. It was on, it became on racial grounds, and that's the big difference. And in fact, in some ways. Uh, it's taken that to make everyone realise just how awful slavery is. Because if it affected anyone across any culture, any religion, any race, then it's almost a universal thing. But when you are specifically targeting a particular group of people, it's very obvious that that's really not right. And although it took many, many years, generations of people in the UK, for example, in America and other places, to recognise how awful and inhuman that that process was um, I think I wonder if they would have realised that and we'd still have slavery if it hadn't have been a racial thing you know, would, would it just be something that people put up with and if that were the case what about human rights and all the other things that come along from that, I mean is that where it all came from, a recognition that you know, one group of human beings is treating another group of human beings in a fundamentally unacceptable way. And that if it was just human beings treating human beings in that way, would we would we would we still have slavery now? Maybe we wouldn't. Maybe maybe it's the opposite. Maybe 
if it hadn't have been put onto racial grounds, maybe it would have been ironed out hundreds of years earlier. Well, I was going to say, um, because of what we talked about previously, which is the in-group preference, is mm. it not always going to end up with one group trying to... Dominate know, another. Yeah. Or one country or one tribe, whatever it might be. So is it, is it not better then that we do away with countries, tribes and... I think they... All the rest of it. We go back to I I, what I was going to say was I think that we we tend towards that. I mean, if you just look at society today, mm. we just can't help but forming into groups. I mm. think I, you're right. I hundred percent in terms of why don't we just get rid of all that? But just group think. You know, you can be part of my group type stuff. I just think it just happens with human beings. Mm. Well, it always has done, doesn't mean it always will do. But certainly in our lifetime, yeah, I don't think we'll see the end of that. And we naturally form into groups. Not necessarily, you know, just even friendships. What, what's a friendship? You, you go to school and you naturally become friends with certain people and not with others. Mm. And within the workplace and everywhere and anywhere, even your neighbours. You naturally might get on better with some neighbours than others. Even within the same family, you naturally get on with some members of the family better than others. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, where does that start? Where does that end? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, what I do know is that pigeonholing and labelling people is definitely not a good thing. I think it'd be better not to have all these labels. And personally, there, there seems to be getting more and more labels. Yeah, I heard that you can specify yourself as a um, hundred different types of genders on Facebook now. Really? Well, that's the other thing, is that we are... and th Actually, this is another thing. Um, the blackface thing was was, was curious. And then um, in Holland, uh, just, just to continue that, um, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's a, a culturally important historical part of our... You know, again, going back to tradition. It's tradition, this Black Peter thing. And it's not racist in any way, but of course, it that's just a simplistic way of looking at it because all sorts of traditions need to be changed and modernised. And when you realise that something isn't as good as it could be, then you try and modify it and improve it. Right? So, for example, um, I don't know, in, in going back to Spain, in Spain you've got bullfighting, mm. um, and it's um, yeah, well, is it is it okay? A, a lot of old generation in Spain think it's an art form and it's like football but a lot of younger people in Spain are quite against it and in certain parts of Spain it's been banned so in Catalonia yeah I know so it's not looked at favorably online there's no. an awful lot of people that say there's something wrong about that well it's a blood sport um, and so if we look at that um, as an example of a tradition that's perhaps best left to the annals of history, um, you could say the same about you know feeding the Romans fed or persecuted Christians and fed them to the lions or whatever it was that they did. That also is not that was a traditional thing. I mean that's what you did, mm. and it probably was part of specific traditions like it. You know, at certain times of year, midsummer they might sacrifice people for for the for the crowd or whatever. That might be a tradition, but it's not acceptable tradition. It needs to be changed. So, you know, 
I don't know much about Black Peter and all the rest of it, but it seems to me that if it is upsetting certain people, then there's no real reason to maintain it. But there you go. We can end on that if you like. And the only other thing I was going to add was, um, do you change the majority because the minority are upset? Mm. Because then you can just change, you can keep changing everything. Mm. No, I think what needs to happen is that um, if, if, we've, if we move away from labelling and stuff like this, and that we, we're all just people getting on with stuff. Individuals. Individuals. Then, um, you know, then you don't have these groups of people being upset and you don't have these group, groups of people feeling threatened and you haven't got these groups of people, you know, attacking other groups of people in any way. So, I don't know. But I'm, I'm not a great fan of tradition, I've got to tell you. I think there's an awful lot of traditions that have created a great deal of pain and suffering. And if they'd have been eradicated many, many years ago, they would have, we'd be a lot further advanced than we are. Um, I, I always wonder about, you know, for example, in the, so going back to the Christian thing and, and the Roman Empire. So at one point, at a certain point, I mean, my, his, my, my knowledge of the history is, is hazy because I've for, forgotten most of this. But basically, at some point, one of the Roman emperors decided that if you can't beat them, join them, became a Christian. At that point, instead of persecuting Christians, became the head of the Christian church within, within Rome. And... Um, Following that point, the Roman Roman Catholic Church was born and created, and St. Peter's and all that. And the Vatican City exists there now because of that. Um, and so, in a way, it's an extension of the Roman Empire. And instead of using soldiers, which is tremendously inefficient and expensive, to control people and to, to get people to think and do things in certain ways, much better to, um, to use religion to do that. And so... I wonder, part of, part of religion, uh, for me at least, and my understanding of it, is it's about power. And one of the ways to do that is to, to maintain power, is to keep people. So, for example, very, very roughly and quickly, uh, priests can't marry. Because if they marry, then they're going to have kids, and they're going to be thinking more about their lines and their, their futures and their kids and stuff than they are the church. So stop them from having any kind of uh, any kids and keep them focused on the church um, also only teach men how to to read make sure that everyone just does the bible is always just in latin and therefore unless you can understand latin you can't learn to read because how what do all these things you need to be able to understand the sentence and, and what's written down in order to be able to you know figure out what what all the so so you keep people ignorant and you keep them um, and Europe anyway after the fall of the Roman Empire uh, as well documented went into what they call the Dark Ages where we lost an awful lot of knowledge about mm. all sorts of things the the Arabs did not do that and they were way in, uh, in advance of us in terms of botany and medical care and attention and all sorts of things philosophy um, education and just everything they were far more advanced than the Europeans were um, during the Dark Ages the Middle Ages and um, and I just wonder if, if if that hadn't happened in the Roman Empire what would have been the result could we could it be that we would be 
500, 1,000 years or so more advanced technologically than we are today. Has that, did that hold Europe back and, you know? Are you saying because of tradition? Because of tradition. I have no idea what 500 or 1,000 years ahead will look like. But. No, but if you can imagine that for 1,000 years, more or less, I mean, you know, I don't know the exact dates and figures, but for 1,000 years, only men were able to become a priest. So your route to, to, to God, to an afterlife, whatever, was through directly through a man. And that man um, was the only one that had any kind of education. The word for a, a priest in, well, one of the words for a priest in Spanish is cura. And the word for to cure someone in Spanish is cura. It's the same root, it's the same word. A cura, in other words, a priest is someone who cures you of issues, problems, ailments. The only person in a community who probably for hundreds of years, the only person in that community who would be able to read and write and have any kind of knowledge whatsoever would be the priest. And he'd always be a man. And, um, and his allegiance would always be to the church. So what if that hadn't been the case? For hundreds of years, thousands of years or so, uh, it was more like um, the Arabs had been. And there were libraries and there was education and there was uh, people could were literate and could read and write and had philosophy and discussions about things. There's a, um, a story about a famous um, scientist, I think in the 16, 1700s maybe. Mm. Um, and he had some forbidden books because at a particular time you mm. weren't allowed to have certain books and they threw him out because he was reading books about the fact that the, you know, we might be in a universe, mm. maybe the earth isn't the centre of everything, that yeah. kind of thing. And that type of thing is, I think, what you're referring yeah. to. Because yeah. if you if you didn't strangle that kind of growth mm. education... Yeah, why would we be today? Yeah. Um, also, you know, even, even much more recently, in um, Henry VIII's time, the printing press had been invented, and people were smuggling in Bibles... Uh, written in English that had been printed in Holland because on, upon pain of death if you were caught with such a Bible or someone said that you were doing it you'd be hung and possibly even hung drawn and quartered or burned to the stake for heresy for actually translating a book from Latin into English and distributing it to people so that they could actually read the Bible mm. I mean how on earth could that be heresy? It's the exact opposite. Some people blame religion for that. Well, it comes down to what really is religion. And I think, again, we all have a concept of what religion is, but is that really what religion is? I mean, is it a belief structure? Is there a reason? Is there a purpose? Is this, What is it? Because it, it seems to me that a lot of it is about control and power. But if you spoke to someone who was, who was religious, I... I, I about, I bet you very, very few of them would, would agree with me. So, and there are definitely, you know, I mean, you know, the Spanish Inquisition is a good example. Um, people being tortured and burnt as heretics and stuff like this, and even printing press that I just mentioned, where people were being executed for, for just printing a Bible in English. Um, so, uh, you know, nowadays you 
you'd think, I mean, that's just the most awful and bizarre concept that you would would do that to someone who's actually clearly a believer and wanting to spread the word of God. So it doesn't make any sense. So it must be about power. The only logical concept is that it's about power. Mm. And if that's the case, then that's really what religion is about. It's not about people's well-being. And, and even if you look at modern the modern Christian church and compare that to Jesus' teachings if in the in the the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, there's not a huge amount in common, really. He had no church, no, didn't write anything down. He didn't have any, you know, everyone was his flock, treated everybody equally. I mean, all of these things are just completely not the way. If it's more about power and less about religion, then um, surely it's the, the, the issue is not uh, in-group preference, but power within the in-group preference. Hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of, I would say, maybe positive things that come from people's want of power. So There like, are. There's many positive things that come from church, and it's helped millions of people who may have committed suicide or suffered or had some kind of uh, feeling of uh, loneliness. or I mean, it, it, it's a tremendous sense of community, and it gels people together. It creates community. So in many ways, the church has been incredibly helpful if you're on the right side of it and beneficial. But if you're on the wrong side of it, it could lead to torture and death. Mm. And, and, and it did and has done for millions and millions of other people. Millions of them. So, And when I went to the, um, the Vatican City in Rome, in, in, it's not technically in Rome, I suppose, but anyway, when I went to the Vatican Museum in the Vatican City, I was astonished... I mean, absolutely astonished um, by the wealth there. I'd never seen such wealth. And that's just in there in the museum. And I'm sickened by it as well. Because why on earth should Jesus, who walked around with no house, no nothing, nothing, nothing on his back, just what he, the clothes that he wore, and preached equality and, you know, Compassion for for other people and all this. I'm not sure he preached equality. Well, he kind of did. He said we're all God's children, we're all equal. Did you not? I don't know. Maybe not. Correct me if you if I'm wrong. I don't. Uh, one of the criticisms I think of Jesus is that he never said anything bad about slavery. No. Well, that goes back to what we were saying earlier on that slavery um, is is just always been around since the beginning of of certainly since so called civilization. And when people grouped together, there had been slaves. But the difference is that in Jesus' time, slavery wasn't based on religion. Uh, on, on, um, it could have been based on ethnicity, but it wasn't based on race. So it would be, you, you may not have slaves from your own tribal group, but you could have slaves from any other tribal group. And they may be, maybe that you could also have slaves from your own tribal group, I don't know. But yeah, you're right, he didn't. But then, I like to think that Jesus was a man, and a man of his time. In fact, way ahead of his time. But uh, he never Except wrote anything down, did he? So it's all written down by Matthew, could, Mark, Luke and John. Could he write? Hmm? Could he write? Could he? Yeah. I don't know. Probably not if he didn't, I would suppose. 
Yeah, well, we don't know. Did he write? Maybe he did write. It's just been, you know, thrown away. We don't know. But I, I do think it's an interesting concept because I, I, I think we've got quite a warped version of, of his views. Um, and we've been brought up with them. And, um, you know, and he, even then when, when um, Henry VIII separated from the Catholic Church and created the Church of England, what was that really about? It was about power. It was about power for him. He, could, he was now the head of the, the church and it gave him power um, to be able to change things like divorce without asking papal consent. And it also, also he, he ended up suddenly with all of the churches in, in England under his authority, which meant that the Catholic Church had lost all of the churches in England, all the wealth that, that came from them. So uh, it's about land grabbing and power basically. Um, I mean, that must have been horrifically frightening for the Catholic Church, for the Pope. It's like, we've suddenly lost every single church in this country, like that, gone. And all the wealth and all the gold and all the other stuff that came from it, and all the revenue stream that came from it, which there would have been. So, I mean, we can see that there was a lot of revenue stream, because if you go to, to the Vatican, it's just the most opulent, wealthy place you've ever seen. So it was a magnet for riches and wealth. So it, it would be terrifying for them to think, and you know where I'm going with this, but it would be terrifying for them to think that if England separates into a church and, and there's bits of Germany that have gone, you know, then there could be other places and we'd lose all of our churches and all of our power and then we would be obsolete and no one would care about us anymore. And the, where I'm going with this is it's exactly the same thing that's happening in the European Union, and I didn't want to get into Brexit, <laughs> but it's the same fear, you know? Yeah, well... Uh, if if you, Britain leaves, and they, you know... That might be, um, I mean, it's a good, what would you say, they've made a good example out of us, if that's the case. Because yeah. no other country, or no other collection of countries, if that's what you want to call mm. us, would want to go through the years of what I now consider to be quite boring um, exit from the European Union. Well, it's, it's become almost, uh, well, it's, it's an absolute farce, but it's become almost every day, isn't it? It's just, that's what it is. It's just, it's, it's, our normal political process has been... Not talking about anything else, that. are they? That's all there is, which is yeah. why I didn't want to mention it. But um, at the same time, yeah. But you, you have to think, how on earth? You know, you put, you vote for these people, politicians and people in power, and yet how on earth could they not have had the ability to foresee that European Union would make this as hard as possible for us? No. Yeah. Ineptitude? Well, I mean, what is it? What, I mean, how could they be, our so-called leaders be so naive as to not think, well, if we, it's essentially a divorce and it's, you know, it's the not naivety, going to be good. I think, comes from having, putting it forward in the first place as an option mm. without the consideration that it would be a yes, let's go, because that wasn't considered, I don't think. I mean, what a mess. I don't think for one second. I mean, it's astonishing, thought, isn't it? 
you know, what happens if the whole country says, yeah, let's go. It just wasn't planned for. Hence, was it three years later? So why are we voting for nincompoops that can come up with, concoct things like that? And, and then people, um, advisors and all the rest of it, who say, no, no, I think it's a good idea. Let's go with it. Let's run with it. I mean, it's bizarre. I think politics is changing, though. I think the typical, I, I don't know about UK politics. I think UK politics is a bit dated at this point. But I think if you well, look at the US... effectively changed in about 500 years, which goes back to tradition. And it's yeah. very tradition-based, English politics. I've been following, as you know, Andrew Yang in the US. Mm. And um, he's running quite a modern campaign. Mm. Um, he's talking about universal basic income. He's talking about uh, the fact that millions of jobs have been automated away. He um, recently, in the most... Um, or the most recent debate, he gave away um, $1,000 a month to 10 um, families for a year. Mm. And he got over 4 million entries or something like that. So what 4 mean, million entries? people. So he said, I'm, I'm going to do away. this and 4 million people apply. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, he's using social media. and uh, I can understand why. I mean, you know, who wouldn't want £1,000 extra a month coming in for free? But it's still surprising how um, people want to vote for the status quo. So um, Biden, who was the vice president for Barack Obama, um, he's still number one and has been since it started, and he's not. I think this is what it comes down to: is tradition. It yeah. is, that's what it is. It's stability. It's it's if it, it gives you a sense of um, belonging and also a sense of security because you know what's what. I and mean, I, when I was a kid, was a bit of a nerd, and I, when it was raining, I'd I'd go to the library and I would look at maps of the world. And I was amazing. I mean, I was astonishingly good at drawing what I could draw. Incredibly accurate map from memory and put all the capital cities, the mountains, everything. And it would look, it would, the proportions would be, you know, tremendously accurate. And I knew where all the capital cities, I knew all, where all the countries were, uh, found out all sorts. That's why I was good at geography, um, why I went on to do geography. And, and I remember feeling it at one point, what do you mean Yugoslavia is now gone and broken into lots of different countries? That's very, very inconvenient. Now I'm going to have to learn all these new countries, you know? What do you mean they've changed the, the, the word from Bombay into Mumbai? That's outrageous. I learned Bombay. I know where Bombay is. Mumbai. I mean, how, other, how many other places have changed? And, and that's just, an, you know, even the RLC, which is this big sea in Central Asia, um, due to... Uh, people misusing water and desert desertification and all the rest of it. It shrunk down to a tiny, tiny fraction of its original size. And so it doesn't even look the same on the map. I mean, that's a, you know, a natural, and you know, it's not even man-made. They only changed the name of a country or changed the borders or split. I mean, I mean it's all very inconvenient. And what by, what by that I mean is that at that point, I gave up with knowing where everyone, I mean, I, at one point I, I knew everywhere, and there was no one who could touch me, you know, because I just knew more than anyone else. In my school, you could have put them all against me, and I would have beaten them because I absolutely, 100%, knew where they all were. And the reason being, because for some peculiar reason, that was my main focus, and I spent my time studying the maps and knowing where they were, and that's just, I spent more time doing that than probably everyone else did in the school. But then it all changes, and it changed, and the world does change, and probably for the better, and hopefully for the better in many cases.
And um, I think people like the feeling that, you know, I learned a fact. Was it the oldest woman in the world was 60, to have a baby was 69 or something. But there's another woman who has one at 75. So your fact's not right anymore. And facts are constantly changing and changing and changing. And people like to learn something and go, that's how things are. And don't like change. So I think that's one of the biggest issues that we, we have. And I think that's where tradition comes from and feeling safe. Mm. Let's keep it for the same because as long as we can because that way we're... We understand it. We are okay, yeah. yeah. And I think increasingly in the world right now, that's less and less achievable because the world is... I mean, even in our own industry, it's changing so quickly. You've just got to constantly be keeping on top of it. Mm. And, you know, you, you have to even ask yourself, am I still an expert in my field? Because my field keeps changing. So I'm an expert in this, but that element's changed. So I'm constantly trying to keep up to up to speed. Mm. And there are some um, courses and qualifications that you mm. can do, which by the time that you completed it, may not the yeah. job might not be there anymore. Yeah, that's right. So it's a fast, fast-changing world. And um, and I think it's wonderful. I love it. I love I love the bits. It's going to give me, you know, I feel excited about what's going to come next. But I'm sure that some bad things are going to come as well as good things. As long as there are more good things, or rather that the good things outweigh the bad things, they doesn't have to. There could be lots of bad things as long as they're all not very bad and just one amazingly good thing, as far as I'm concerned. But as long as overall the good things outweigh the bad things, and I think, I think it's a good thing. That's it. Another good thing. <laughs> anyway, I've got to go, my friend. So I think um, I have no idea with this podcast where it's going or where it's gone um, or what we've even talked about. We talked about a lot. Any last things that you would uh, you'd like to mention? No, happy with that. So um, until next time. Until next time, it is. <laughs>